Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. How are we this morning? Good? Having a nice weekend? Good. Just thought I'd check, you know. Mine's been good too, you know, so just thought I'd let you know. But uh, um, uh, so last night, uh, my family, kind of a big deal for us. We, we finished the Prince of Egypt. We watched the Prince of Egypt. I, I considered it an important part of study for this series through Exodus that I, you know, we had at least, I don't think I've watched it all the way through. Actually, I realized uh, over the last couple of days we've watched it that I'm like, oh my gosh, I have not seen this. Ama- it's quite the cast, quite the cast that is doing the voice of Prince of Egypt. And it's a it's an amazing movie. I would go watch it. Um, but here's kind of the, the problem with a lot of either movies about Exodus or, or just different things about the story that you hear about the, about the book of Exodus um, is that it sort, of just, it sort of just stops once we get to the point that we got to last week. So last week, we've kind of preached our way through Exodus chapter 20 and gotten up to the part of the Ten Commandments. And that, I mean, literally like you watch the, watch the uh, Prince of Egypt and it's like Moses coming down after meeting with God and he's carrying with him the 10 commandments of the law. And then the movie just ends as if it's like, that's the happy ending right there. And that's not, you know, for those of you who know the story, it's not the end of the movie, but that's, that's oftentimes where we stop. Maybe if you could be honest, Exodus chapter 20, after you kind of read the 10 commandments, then you're like, yeah, then it's just kind of a lot of weird stuff. And that's just sort of where my Bible reading trails off. As I just sort of stopped there after Exodus chapter 20, a lot of us are familiar with the story thus far, I guess is what I'm trying to say, uh, until we get to this point where we just go, yeah, and then it's just a bunch of other rules. And then there's this whole golden calf thing. And then, you know, just the stuff that is, doesn't really seem that appealing. But what I would say is that uh, really studying this this week, I think actually Exodus chapter 20 through 40 is maybe, is maybe part of the most exciting part of Exodus once you understand that this, is, this begins to tell the story of why we've been saved. So if Exodus so far has gotten us through why we needed saved, if you remember uh, week one, we talked about how um, Exodus kind of moves through four scenes, if you will. And it starts with bondage and captivity, Israel, the nation being enslaved to Egypt. And that represents in a lot of ways, our story, how we are enslaved to sin, how we are caught in captivity, in bondage to sin. And then when we have this dramatic rescue, this freedom moment where the Passover lamb is slain and us as God's people are invited into relationship with him purely by the blood of the lamb, purely because of what Jesus has done, we are now invited into, be able to step out into freedom with him. And so there's this dramatic liberation moment in, in scene two. And then scene three is the wilderness, right? And it's the, the, the question that kind of lingers in the wilderness uh, is, are you going to continue to trust him? Will you continue to trust him? And so maybe you, even today, you're kind of sitting in a wilderness season where uh, you know you've been saved. You can look in the rearview mirror. You can see how God has shown up in your life, but you're still, we're all still waiting for heaven one day. And so we're in this in-between. Will we continue to trust him in the wilderness? Will we can trust him to be, will we continue to trust him to be daily bread? That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. And then will we continue to trust that his word is the path to life? His word is the path to life. There's so many different ways that you can frame and look at the word of God, but the best way to look at it is to go, no, this, this is a book of life right here. These, there's, there's so many other tellings in culture of what this book is, that it's, that it's prude, that it's stifling me from life, that it's trying to rob me of joy. But Jesus makes the exact opposite argument, that God in his word is trying to invite us into the fullest possible version of life. And so now what we consider as we look at this is, is 
Exodus chapter 20 through 40, where we're going to hang out for the next few weeks, is looking at um, if, that's where, if that's where we've been saved from, and if that's how we've been saved in the second scene, and if the wilderness is this, will I continue to trust him in my salvation is scene three. The, the question that we're going to ask today is, is, God, why have you saved me? So all this just happened, but, but God, why? What are, what are you doing now? And I think that question gets answered for us in Exodus 19. We read this last week, but we're going to read it again. And I'm going to show you how it shows up a second time in the New Testament. It says in Exodus 19, uh, 5 and 6, God says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Peter, the apostle Peter, is actually going to echo these words in his letter to the exiles. So he's, he's sending a letter to encourage all these people that have been scattered uh, because of this great persecution. And this, these are some of his words to those people. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Really, here's where we get marching orders as a church. Here's where Israel gets their marching orders is in Exodus 19, where it says your role now that you have been saved is simply to reflect God's good character into the world so that he might be glorified. Uh, Jesus would maybe say it this way. Now we get to do this thing where we get to participate in bringing his kingdom. This is the purpose that we get to carry out as a holy nation, as a chosen people. And we get to actually embark on this journey where we're partnering with the God of the universe in doing some very distinct things to reflect his character and his nature into the sinful, broken, lost, dark world that we're living in. Man, and this is, this is where I just want to compel you all that this is why Christianity should never be boring. Man, it can be a lot of different things. It can be tough some days. I don't think Christianity is just this cakewalk that we're always going through. Christianity can be really awesome some days. There can be some high highs and some, and some dark days. But man, Christian, Christianity should never be, at, at the, the last thing that we could describe it as, is just boring and plain, mundane. And for some of you who I think maybe you have embraced this idea that Christianity is just this kind of rote practice, I wonder if the reason you've embraced Christianity is some kind of uh, not really life-filled thing is because you're failing to step into the purpose that God has for you. And so over the course of Exodus chapter 20 through 40, we see lots of different things. And we could, um, I mean, seriously, it's 20 chapters of scripture. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks in this portion of scripture, but I've pulled out three things that we see distinctly in these passages of scripture that we're going to see reflected again in the New Testament that I think give us as the church wind in our sails or marching orders for our feet as we carry on this purpose to bring God's glory into the world that we're living in. John chapter, uh, the first thing that we see is that people, the people of God are to be hearers and doers of the word of God. So this is kind of the first thing that I'm going to pull out of the text out of these uh, 20 passages of scripture is that it's, it's clear that the people of God, Israel, hear the word of God and they do the word of God. So in Exodus chapter 25 through 28, if you've ever done a Bible reading plan, if you've ever read all the way through the book of Exodus, you're going to notice some things. Exodus chapter 25 through 28 are all these instructions on how to build various things. 
They're gonna build the tabernacle. They're gonna arrange and build all the furniture that's in the tabernacle. They're gonna, they're gonna make the priestly garments. They're gonna put together all these distinct things and God is giving them very clear instruction about how he's going to tabernacle or dwell with his people. And he's saying, you're gonna build it like this and it's gonna be this many cubits and it's gonna be made of this kind of linen and he's giving all these different instructions. And then if you keep reading in your Bible plan, you get to Exodus 36 and you go, haven't I read this before? Anyone ever been there? Like, I mean, it's almost verbatim the same things where it's the people of God heard this instruction from the Lord. And then in Exodus 36, you know what they did? They did it. They heard it and they did it. They heard the word of God. They were given instruction from the word of God. And then they were obedient to do what God had told them to do. This is something that should mark the people of God. We hear God's voice and we're obedient to do what he's told us to do. This is echoed by Jesus in John chapter 10. I'm going to read, I'm going to read a bit of this and I'm going to break it up just a little bit. But in John chapter 10, we see the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Who's the thief? The devil. I came, I came, Jesus came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. It's like your friend when you know you're getting to a fight or whatever. And you know, you know who your real friends are because they'll fight with you and your other friends will just bounce, right? But no, Jesus is in it with you. Jesus jumps in. He doesn't, he sees the wolf coming and he doesn't leave the sheep behind, but he, instead he jumps in. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. Uh, It says in verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, the Passover lamb. Again, the only reason that we have this relationship with God is because he has provided this way because of the blood that he has spilled on our behalf, hanging on the cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserved. He gets up there and he lays down his life so that he can be brought back together with his sheep, with his people. He says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. When Jesus is first talking, he's talking of the nation of Israel. But now he's saying, and I have more sheep, more sheep that belong. So now he's not just saying, okay, these people, Israel, I'm going to save them. But now he's saying, no, and I have other sheep that are not part of this flock right here. I have other sheep besides Israel. I have the whole world that I'm making this offer available to. I'm coming so that everyone might know me. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. I will, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He continues this on in John chapter 17. For this reason, the father loves me. For, this, this is kind of a shocking verse to me this week. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my father. This goes on to say in, in, in verse 25, Jesus then answers them, um, Jesus answers them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you, you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Do you hear it there? My sheep know my voice. They hear my voice and they follow me. My sheep listen to the commands that I've given and they do what I've called them to do. Um, which is great, right? It's crystal clear. It's crystal clear. Just hear God's voice, do what he says. Read the Bible, do what it says. What's the problem? 
Yeah, yeah, you're all giggling right now because you know the problem because we're terrible at it, right? And listen, this is why I find the, the story that's found in Exodus 32 actually refreshing. If you're not familiar with what happens in Exodus 32, it's the story of the golden calf. And so while, while Moses is getting, he's, he's entering into covenant. Israel's in, in the middle of entering into a covenant relationship with God. They, they have panicked. They, they've gotten impatient. And so they bring all their jewelry. And, and, you know, Aaron, he's just kind of the word. You read the story and you're like, what is going on here? Because Aaron, it says, he takes all their jewelry and he fashions it into a gold calf. And Moses is like, what is going on here when he gets back? Because they're worshiping an idol. As he's meeting with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as he's just beaten up on all the Egyptian gods to show that he is the only one, only true God. And they go back to worshiping this golden calf. And Moses is like, what are you doing? And he's like, I, ju- I just threw all the stuff in there and it just came out like a call. You know, I'm just like, what? you liar, right? But sin, sin does that. Sin, when it gets in you, it kind of rearranges things. It makes you tell different versions of the story. And it makes you actually, actually believe that you're telling the truth when you're telling a lie. So here's, here's, Okay, you read the, the story of the golden calf. And here, I heard this, uh, read this in a commentary. I heard this, I can't remember which one. The golden calf is the equivalent of, of having an affair on your wedding night. You think about that. And I want, you, I want you just to viscerally feel this for a moment. It's as if you just exchanged vows in front of all the people that you love. And, and you sat there with someone who was just the best, Right? And you sat there and you exchanged vows with your spouse. And you said, I do. And you kissed the bride and you just had this amazing moment. And then later that night, it's like, it's like she went to the bathroom for just a moment. And then it took like a little extra time. And then it was like a little longer than you thought it was going to be. And so your response to that was to go off and have an affair. That's the equivalent of what Israel just did. Right? And you feel that, right? You feel how bad this feels right now. What's God's response to that act of sin? He moves towards them. He, he comes back. Like God's initial response is like, listen, I'm going to smoke them all. And Moses is like, well, Lord, hold on. Like, just let's, let's think about this for just a second, right? And then what is God gracious enough to do? To rewrite the 10 commandments, to re-enter into covenant relationship with Israel. And so here's what I want to say. Sin has this, has this, uh, this ability once it's inside of us to try and separate us from God, but it's us that does the separating, not God. If, like, because when you think about this story, Israel is already in relationship with God. It's kind of like you and me who already know Jesus, who are already in covenant relationship with Jesus. You've already given your life to him. You've surrendered to him and you still have sin in your heart, don't you? Man, this is serious because every single person that I know, myself included, we've had those uh, awesome moments with the Lord. And it's just been like, oh my gosh, God, you're so good. You've provided in such a crazy way. You've, you've shown your presence to me in such a beautiful way. And I still willingly choose sin. I still will. I, I, I have times where I just completely neglect him. Don't you? It's like, God, you've been so good and I've forgotten. God, you've been so good and I've chosen against you. And God's response is always and consistently towards you. Towards you. And so if you're feeling separation from God right now because of behavior that's in your life, that's because you're distancing yourself from him, not he from you. And you do embrace this. As we embrace this, we can now embark on what uh, Matt Chandler calls in the explicit gospel, uh, grace-driven effort. How are we going to be obedient to God? Through grace-driven effort. Not, not perfectly. 
We're not going to follow God perfectly, but hopefully because we have this like gospel empowered effort to follow after him. Here's what grace driven effort really means. It means that we're doing things from a position of love, not for a position of love. Do you see that those two things are worlds apart? Uh, As I try and follow after a God, after God, it's me coming back to what God called me in Exodus 19, that I'm a treasured possession of his. I'm a beloved child of his. And as I continue to soak in and sit in that reality, that empowers me now to continue to do the things that he's called me to do. If I'm sitting here trying to go, God, I'm going to do all these things so that you love me more. That is going to be exhausting. And it's a broken way to look at God. It's backwards. He loves you. Church, he loves you. You don't know what I've done this week. I I don't need to know what you've done this week. He loves you. He's for you. He's called you. He's adopted you. He's chosen you. Do you get it? And as we rest in this reality, the gospel, that empowers me to come closer to him and be more obedient to him, not as a, not as some follower that is like trying to appease him, but as a son, as a daughter, I get to just follow after him and pursue him knowing. And of course, it's just like my own kids. They're not going to, they're not going to do everything I ask them to do perfectly. Does that change my love for them? No. Does it change the love for your kids when they don't do everything perfectly? No, they might test your patience a little bit because he's God. I'm not God, right? You're not God. So we, our, 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 even our own parenting is faulty to a point. But as we receive this identity, then we can follow after him through, through this grace, grace-driven effort. The second thing that's in these passages of scripture. So we have the people of God hear the word, they do the word. The second thing that we see is that the people of God are, are distinctly generous. They're distinctly generous generous. We see this all over the place. Um, Exodus 25, Exodus 35. And I want to show it to you in Exodus 25. Uh, it reads like this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution from me. God basically is saying, Hey, prepare an offering, get ready for an offering. And I know what you're thinking right now. You're like, okay, here we go. Here we go. Church is talking about money again. Didn't we just do this in September? We just did this. And now we were talking, no, we're like, listen, we're not passing a plate. Like, you know, what's really cool. We never passed a plate through this whole process. And y'all gave almost half a million dollars. Okay. That's like, that's awesome. That's awesome. And, and God says here, he's like, Hey, get ready to take an offering. And I know that like, as soon as we bring this up, you start to have this kind of like little, ah, you know, is he going to ask for more? What's, what's going to happen? No, we're not asking for more. I just want you to see that the people of God are distinctly generous. So we read, we read further. And this is what the contribution that you shall receive from, the, from them. So this is what the contribution is going to look like. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, for the, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones, uh, and stones for setting, for the ephod, and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst." So God's saying, hey, offer this stuff because I want to be with my people. Again, it's presence, it's covenant, it's relationship. God is consistently moving towards. But I think we hear this and we go, man, okay, God just wants, he wants all their stuff. Like he just is coming after their stuff. Like how come he couldn't just give them, like how come he couldn't just have given them stuff to give? And I would actually say, that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. John preached on this when he preached on the plagues. Exodus chapter 12, verse 35 and 36. 
How did they, you got to think Israel's a nation that has now been wandering through the wilderness and they had all this stuff that God was asking them to give. God wasn't, at, I mean, that list seems really random. You're like goat skin, really? Like that's what you want for the tabernacle. Okay, right? Like all these different colored yarns. Where did they get it all? Well, they got it from Egypt when they left Egypt. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. This is right, right after the 10th plague. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing or for fine linen, depending on your translation. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Egypt just gave it to him because God gave them favor in the sight of the Lord. So what did God ask for? He asked for the same stuff that he'd already given to them. This is what makes, this is what makes Christianity a distinct generosity. Our generosity is distinct from the world's generosity in that we give out of worship, understanding that God has first given to us. You know, you know that like people in the world that we're living in can just, they can be generous. I think sometimes we have this picture of, of total depravity or atheists or people that don't follow God, people who don't love the Lord. And we go, well, they can have, they are, there's obviously nothing good about any of those people. And I'm like, do you have eyes? Like there are people who have millions and millions of dollars and they can give millions and millions of dollars. Like they, there are people who are insanely generous in the world that we're living in and they have no relationship with Christ that I know of right? They just can, people can give money away. People have uh, this idea, they have, they have made in the image of God. And so they have the capacity for generosity. But what makes Christian generosity distinct is that we are giving in worship. We're not giving to make some God happy. We're not giving, uh, we're not giving so that we can earn some sort of street cred for ourselves. We're not giving just for a tax incentive. Amen. We might give because there's also a tax, like that might be a helpful thing along the way, but that's not why we're giving. Amen. So we're giving, we're giving back to the Lord, recognizing that he has first given to us. This is what makes Christianity uh, in its generosity very distinct from the rest of the world. People, people love to be generous in the world they're living in. Um, so long as they, you know, it's like, wow, well, yeah. I mean, look at me. Look at how generous I am. Aren't I awesome? Right? It's, it's this weird version of like selfishness that is wrapped up in generosity. You know, you've seen that before. Or we just go, okay, I have, I have this personal thing that I really want to go crazy about and I want to invest in. And so, but you can, yeah, label me as generous, whatever you want. But really only Christians start with the mentality that, no, I've, I've actually been given everything that I have. And so now I'm going to respond in worship to that generosity that's been given to me by being generous myself. So this is where, this is where I think as American Christians, we really have two warring ideas that go on in our head. Uh, on the one side, you have just kind of like this Americanism that is like, man, you earn everything that you get. You, you want to have much? Work hard. Like lazy people don't have stuff. Like if you want to have stuff, work hard, right? It, tell me that's not in us as Americans. We're just going, man, I'm going to pick myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deliver. I'm going to show up. I'm going to grind. I'm going to grit, like all these different things. And we go, I'm going to produce. And you just think about how much of our economic system is built on you producing in such a way that you can produce enough so that you don't have to work one day, right? Like, I mean, go to another country and ask about social security. Let's go down to Haiti and ask how their social security system is doing. It doesn't exist, right? And even if it did, it would be so filled with corruption, it wouldn't be there anyways, right? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip the joke that would be available right there. I'm just going to pass right over it and I'm going to stay on track here. Um, you think about how much there's just like all these, all these things with 401ks, so many things built around passive income strategy. I mean, you just get on TikTok for like 10 seconds and you see some guy who's making passive income doing this thing. And it's like, 
All right, cool. How much of our economy is just built around our consumption and our comfort? And so you have this as Christians living in America, we have this in us. But hopefully we have another gear that's warring with that gear to go, no, God has is, God is not just given me all the stuff I have. He's given me the, all the capacity I have to earn and to work and to make a living here in this country. So that was Psalm 3, verse 5. I slept, I woke, and God sustains me. How beautiful is that? Like some, some of y'all, like you, we cannot wake ourselves up. God wakes us up. Some of y'all, like you can't go to sleep, right? You're like struggling with not being able to sleep right now. God helps you sleep. God wakes you up and it's the Lord who sustains you. Here, like just breathe out for a second. God's given you everything that you have and every, every ability that you have to do the things that he's asking you to do. Every resource, everything that you can put your hands on, it's because either God's given it directly to you or indirectly he's given you the gifts to earn a living to have that thing. And again, I'm not saying you shouldn't have nice things. I'm not saying you shouldn't live in a nice house. I'm just saying you should, as a believer, have this recognition that God has given you everything that you own everything that you own. He's bestowed it all to you. It's a gracious gift on, on his behalf. And so um, here's, I think the reason that these two things war within us and they're allowed to war within us so much is maybe, maybe in part around the language we use when it comes to salvation or being saved or becoming a Christian. Like we ask questions to our kids, like, well, have you asked Jesus to be your forever friend? You know, have you asked Jesus to save you? Like, and we use this language and listen, Jesus is a friend. Amen. He is a friend. He's for sure a friend. We, but when we say like, have you asked Jesus into your heart? I'm still looking for that verse in the Bible. What I do see, and maybe what like, you know, I don't, I'm not sure it'd be the best question to ask a kid, but it's like, have you died to yourself and made Jesus your Lord and your savior? But which one's more biblically accurate? Please, please hear the heart that this is coming from. Like, I, I think we should talk to our kids about Jesus as a friend, Jesus as a companion, Jesus as somebody who has saved us. But I just don't think we should truncate the gospel to say, no, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Like, if once we start to use this allegiance language, we realize that like, no, I have given my life to the King of Kings and I'm serving him and everything that I have comes from him. Man, once you make that statement, you're so much more free to give back and worship than to come over to this side and try and just continue to build your life based on consumption and comfort. And I'm not saying that that doesn't still happen. Like, man, Katie and I, we have, we have planted both of our feet in the ground. Jesus is our Lord and Savior. Praise God, your pastor is saved. You know what I'm saying? So we're, we are over here and we are, we are saved. We have given Jesus our full allegiance. And yet there are still pockets in our heart that when we do this uh, building offering several weeks ago, where it's like, oh, okay. And you let it go and you're like, well, that, it still stings my flesh somewhere. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Like that's still in me. But if I can continually bring my mind back to, no, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. He's not just the one who freed me out of Egypt. He's the one whom I belong to exclusively with my allegiance. Now, all of a sudden, my generosity uh, has, a, has a well to come from. My generosity has a place to go like, no, God's, God is, he's so above it all and he's still so in it all that I surrender all to him. Amen? 
Amen. So the people of God are distinctly generous. Here's, what's, here's what happens um, when Israel kind of embraces that everything belongs to God. They clearly, they clearly have this part right. It says in Exodus 35, 21, it says, and they came down, everyone whose heart was stirred um, and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting. So this is the part where they're actually bringing the offering now, bringing all the material so they can make the tabernacle and all of the different furnishings and stuff for all of its service service and for the holy garments. It says in Exodus 35, 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought, uh, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram's skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their uh, skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord, a free will offering to the Lord. And they said to Moses, and they said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. You think about that for a sec. First time ever uh, an offering has just been halted. Like, Listen, we got enough. In fact, we got too much. It's done. Stop it. It's all, like, we got to shut this thing down. We've got too many supplies to build this thing. I, I just... I want to just kind of invite you a little bit to consider what would it look like if not just, not again, this church, I'm so in awe of your generosity consistently, but what if the church in America was marked by this kind of generosity? Now you can just kind of ponder that for just a second. All the social programs, all the things that exist that are trying to solve problems through just rules and regulations. But if now the church had all this resource to just get involved and step in where we should be stepping in, where we could actually not just bring like kind of some set of artificial or, or uh, rules that are exterior being imposed on people, but we'd actually bring gospel transformation into these places that need it the most. To the point where like, you know, the government's just like, okay, whoa, hey, church, listen, enough, stop, relax. And we're just like, no way. We're distinctly generous. We're distinctly generous. Could you go, Jen, to the verse in Acts? In Acts, uh, we read the people of God, as they, as they were meeting and gathering, it says, and all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It was, it was a characteristic that marked the early church. They were just so generous. They were so willing to just let go of their possessions all for the advancement of the kingdom, all for the advancement of the gospel. So the people of God hear the word of God. They do the word of God. They're distinctly generous. And the third thing that we see is that the people of God are filled with the spirit of God to do the work of God. The people of God are filled with the spirit of God, gifted by the spirit of God to accomplish the work of God. In Exodus 35, verse 10, as they're getting ready to, to begin building, God says, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. So God has given this work to be done. 
He said, we're going to build the temple. It's going to look specifically and exact, um, the tabernacle, sorry. It's going to look specifically and exactly like this. And now I'm going to have you bring me the skillful people who can build it, have them come to me so they can build it. But it doesn't just stop with their human skill. In Exodus 35, verse 30, we read, Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, and for every skilled craft." God calls him and he gifts him. He fills him with the spirit of God. And he, he's given this guy, Bezalel, and another guy, Ohiliab. And he says, you're going to build it now. You're filled with the spirit of God to accomplish this task that I've given you. So here's what we know is that, is that for Israel, there were specific people gifted and filled by the spirit to accomplish the work that they were given. What do we know now in the age that we're living in? Well, we know now because in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two, he says, the spirit of God has been poured out on all people. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's a prophecy from the Old Testament that Peter's going, that's, what hap- that's what's happening right now. The Holy Spirit has come and he's gifted everyone in various different ways. We have all these lists that we could read about, uh, some in Romans, some in Ephesians. And Paul is describing for us that the body of Christ, The body of Christ is a gifted set of people distinctly and supernaturally by the spirit of God, that there are no spectators to Christianity. There's not one of you that is not gifted by the spirit for something. I don't know what your gift is. I think I know what my gift is. Sometimes I question myself. My man, is this, are you sure? We do it. And and God's like, no, okay. I'm just going to keep on using your mouth. You know, like keep going, dumb, dumb. Like, let's just keep doing this thing. But church, I'm not the only one with the gift in the room. Caden's not the only one with the gift in the room. John, Robin, all, Katie, is not, they're not the only people with gifts in the room. Every single person in this room who has given their life over to Jesus has this moment where they're empowered by the Spirit of God. And part of what comes alive in you is a supernatural gift from him to accomplish the work that he has for the church in the world. And that's what, like, so in step two, you're going to do this, this spiritual gifts test. And we're going to kind of see, okay, what are maybe some, star- we call it a primer because we know that there's no test that really we could administer or create that's going to say, booyah, we've discovered you have the spiritual, after, spiritual, <laughs> uh, spiritual gift of administration or of leadership. But what we can do is we can say, hey, God has created you for something. God's given you a gift. You are his son. You are his daughter. He's chosen you. He's adopted you. He loves you. He's reconciled you to himself. And now our our role as the church is now partner with him in the reconciliation that he's doing in the world around us. This is this beautiful thing. And and I think that what we we like to do with the book of Exodus, here I've been referencing this kind of a lot, is that we love to go, man, if only I was Israel. If only I was one of them. Like, I mean, watching, watching Prince of Egypt last night, I was even kind of reminded, I was like, man, no, that would have been awesome to walk through the Red Sea as it was parted and see the whale come through this. You know what I mean? Like his lightnings. For those of you who know, you know, right? But to see the fire, to see the pillar of smoke, to see all this like awesome, dramatic, powerful acts of God, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? You know, Israel would be saying if they could look the other way in time and they could look at us, they're going, wait, the tabernacle that we assembled, 
that has this inner room, the Holy of Holies, that even the priest has to wear little bells on his, on the bottom of his garments, just in case he goes in there and he hasn't made atonement for all the sin because the presence of God is in that room that if there's any sin present in him, he's just going to fall over dead. So we got to put like little bells, like a cat on the bottom of his clothes. And, and they're saying, wait, so that, that, the presence of God that lives in that most inner part of the tabernacle that is reserved for one person, one time a year, that's available to you at any point, at any time. See, because the Holy Spirit now lives inside us. And so it's, it's real easy to say, man, if only I was back then, I would be real obedient. But it'd be so much easier on their end to say, man, if I had that kind of access, without all this blood that had to be shed, with all of these sacrifices that had to be made, and I could just walk with him, and I could just know him intimately. And that's the relationship with the Holy Spirit that we've been given, folks. This daily obedience, this daily, like you, you have him. The presence of God is with you, in you. That's an amazing thing. Again, there's nobody that gets to be sidelined in the kingdom of God. Everybody who's been invited in has been given a work, has been given a ministry, and has been given a supernatural gift to fulfill that ministry. Every single one of you. I don't care if you're a mechanic. I don't care if you're an accountant. I don't care if you are retired for the last 15 years and you're busier than ever. You have been given ministry by God himself and his presence, his actual presence now inhabits you. We're going to take communion now. And at Good Shepherd, we have open communion. So even if you're a guest, it's your first time. As long as you have relationship with God, I'd invite you to come and to communion, uh, to, to come and commune. I'm going to read a verse uh, to kind of just maybe set our hearts right before we jump into it. But I want you to kind of consider as we look at those three different areas, as we look at, okay, God, um, am I doing the word that you've called me to do? Am I listening to your voice and doing what you've asked me to do? Maybe that one kind of jumped as we read through it today. That, man, I really just need more of this grace-driven effort in my life. Maybe as we, as we ran through generosity, you kind of realize, man, you know what? I, you know, I'm, I'm really reluctantly generous. I'm not worshipfully generous for sure. I'm generous because I have to be or because I know I should be, but I'm not really generous because I get to be. That's not my posture. Maybe it's this last one. You just need more uh, awareness that no, God's, God's invited you to himself. The re one of the reasons why you've been saved is so that you can partner with the ministry that he's doing in the world that we're living in right now. It's not just me and not just this room and not this, this, this building, this service time that's doing ministry. We are ministers of the gospel all in this room, all in this room. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, I think says it maybe most succinctly by the Apostle Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses of the world against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, just like John just shared. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As you come to the communion table, as your heart is ready, I'd just invite you to come and spend a moment sitting in and soaking in that reality. 
We'll take a few minutes here. There are tables in the front, tables in the back. There's gluten-free uh, on the side table, tables upstairs. Uh, come, grab the elements as your heart is ready, and I'll close this out in prayer in just a few minutes. out of here to find those people, God. Would we not just leave today? We love you, Jesus, and we need you, and this is all for you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.